Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Dr. Julia Shaw on the science behind humanity's dark side in her new book, Making Evil. Dr. Julia Shaw is a scientist in the Department of Psychology at University College London. Her academic work, teaching and role as an expert witness have focused on different ways of understanding criminal behaviour. Dr. Shaw has consulted as an expert on criminal cases and delivered police training and military workshops. She is also the co-founder of SPOT, a startup that helps employees to report workplace harassment and discrimination and employers to take action. Her work has been featured in outlets such as CNN, the BBC, The New Yorker, Wired, Forbes, The Guardian and The Spiegel. And Julia's new book is Making Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side, which we're going to be talking about today. Julia, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, pleasure to be here. So tell us what the idea behind Making Evil is, first of all. It's effectively a manifesto against evil. So it's breaking down things that we often associate or call evil uh, and trying to figure out what we actually mean when we use the term and what, if anything, science can teach us about each of those pieces. And indeed, evil is, I mean, it's sort of a provocative word because it's so sort of amorphous. How are you defining it here? <laughs> evil is quite a sexy word. I've been noticing it pop up more and more sort of in imagery. So I think when you write a book, you become particularly attuned to uh, mentions of whatever it is you're writing about popping up everywhere. And it, it is quite amazing to see sort of depictions of devils and transgression and deviance, uh, almost glorified quite often, but then also pointed out in the news and other outlets as sort of the worst possible atrocity. So it's a curious mix that I think we have this fascination with evil and we also villainize people who commit what we consider evil acts. What fascinated me? Why did I write the book? Uh, I wrote the book because I am a criminal psychologist and I've long been fascinated by why people do bad things. I think you could also call the book, I mean, it's sort of funny that I put the word evil on the cover, given that the whole thing is an argument against it. Um, but it's, I, I think that for me, it could also be called, or humans behaving badly, and trying to understand why we do bad things. Um, but for me, I taught a course on evil. I created and taught a course on evil, and I found it absolutely amazing to watch university students uh, disagree and talk about 
really, really big concepts like what is terrorism or what are fetishes or what are sort of what are psychopaths? What do we how do we feel about serial killers and what part of anything is evil? And I, I think it was fascinating to watch that discourse. And I wanted to bring it to a wider audience. Um, before we get into the book, tell us something about your work as an expert witness that I mentioned in the intro and perhaps how that feeds into this book. Yeah, so my background is uh, so a particular niche of criminal psychology which focuses on eyewitnesses and victims and suspects remembering crimes. So how in a courtroom, for example, does someone recall something terrible that happened to them or that they did? And in particular within that niche, um, I did some research on what are called false memories. So false memories are memories of things that never actually happened. And so that can happen when a witness points at an innocent person in a stand and says that's the person who did it, or when a suspect confesses to a crime that they didn't commit because of leading or suggestive interview techniques that they've been subjected to. So I did that in the lab. I recreated that. I convinced people they committed crimes that never happened. Um, I've been called an adorable monster for doing so, um, which is probably my favorite term ever that someone <laughs> used. It was actually in French. <laughs> Um, but but it, but the point, the purpose of the research is to show how easily it is to manipulate memories and the potential repercussions for the justice system. For this book, um, I got a letter because I do this work from someone in prison, and this person wrote to me saying that he had murdered his father and stabbed him many many times. Um, so what we would call overkill, and the reason he did it, he said, was because of a false memory. So he says that he had this rush back of an abusive childhood involving his father, who he was caring for at the time. And he felt in an act of almost retribution, he then murdered his father. And the day after, he thought that couldn't have happened. And the reason he says that he had this false memory is that he had been repeatedly told, because he was seeking help for alcohol alcoholism, um, that he must have had an abusive childhood. And he was told it so many times that at some point he believed it and he thought he had these memories flood back. Um, but now he's still, he's still in prison. And he's not denying that he murdered anyone. He's mm -hmm. just, I think that's a really interesting twist to how we think of crime, how we think of murder, and how it can be fabricated and come from a past that never was. So you've created this situation you've created, if you will, this monster. Now, at the very beginning of the book, you do a really interesting empathy test, mm -hmm. which is sort of asking us to, you know, to understand the position of people that might do evil things. Tell us about that test. It's great. Do you mean the uh, think about the worst thing you've ever done? <laughs> yeah, I, I um, definitely uh, try to push a lot of buttons with the book. Uh, I think hopefully if I've done my job, you will feel quite uncomfortable at various points reading the mm -hmm. book. Uh, but that's completely intentional. The point is to talk about taboos. The point is to discuss issues that we might be fascinated by, but maybe a bit worried about, scared about, haven't really thought about in depth, and to do it in a way that you know forces you to think about it. The empathy test is think about the worst thing you've ever done and then to think about whether that's cheating maybe, maybe you lied about something, maybe you cheated on a partner, that's a classic one, uh, maybe you did something worse. And now the experiment is assume that everybody knew about it. So think about sort of your loved ones, think about your friends and family, everybody knows about it. Maybe it's even tattooed on your forehead. I mean, you could go to an extreme. And that's the one thing, the one label that everybody from that point on defines you as. And I think most people, once they've thought about it for a second, go, oh, my God, that'd be terrible uh, if, you know, the one worst thing, whatever that is for you, uh, that everybody knew about it and thought about it all the time. And the other part of that is that effectively for you, you would go, but that can't possibly explain me and my complexity as a human being. 
And yet that's what we do with other people all the time. And so we call people things like murderer because they killed someone once. And that can't possibly explain their human experience or the factors that led up to that situation or help us prevent it going forward. Okay, well, I want to talk about, in the first chapter, you talk about whether or not people are are born evil. Mm -hmm. You know, questions to which the answer is no. And, um, <laughs> well, sort of, right? The, I, I think the answer to most of the things is it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> you use the, um, you know, again, the, the great sort of thought experiment. Um, would you kill baby Hitler? Yeah, which this year, like every year, has again had some media attention. Um, so in controversial settings, it gets extra, an extra boost. Is that a question to me? Would I yes. kill baby I would not kill baby Hitler. Uh, and that's in no way because I approve of uh, anything that Hitler did, but I generally think that killing babies is a bad idea. You see, I, don't know, I never understand why it's always, would you go back in time and kill Hitler? Why does the question never like, would you go back in time and become Hitler's friend? <laughs> and change his views. Because that <laughs> would also completely yeah. change the path that he then took. Yeah. I also think, you know, would you not, would you go back in time and knock on the door, ring the doorbell at the moment that Hitler's parents were about to conceive him. <laughs> well, I mean, that, but that's a real question, is how far back do you go, right? Do you, do you kill his mom? Do you kill his we grandma? We don't have to kill anyone, that's the point. That's Fair. the point. That doesn't have to be any killing just, involved. Just interrupt them slightly. But I like the killing ideas. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, interrupt it. And I think that there's also the, I mean, he, he wasn't, I mean, Hitler was, I failed to accept that, or I refused to accept that there, he was such a special human being that there couldn't have ever been anyone like him. Mm -hmm. um, we know that there's been horrible political figures throughout time. There's been some more recently than Hitler as well. Uh, and there's been genocide since Hitler. I mean, the, like there have been atrocities in leaders who can be quite manipulative and charming and have a lot of the traits that Hitler had. And I mean, the political situation at the time is entirely plausible to me. That's if Hitler didn't exist, someone else would have filled that role. Um, and so it's more about changing other structures and other pieces of that potentially than just getting rid of the one individual. I mean, it's this idea that he was born evil and so it was always going to happen, which I think is wrong. In terms of using that, you know, would you kill Hitler question in a sort of clinical setting, what are we, what are we asking people? We're asking people if they think it's nature or nurture that causes people to do bad things. Um, and that's, I think, the, it, it, I mean, people will get into the sort of semantics of it all and sort of, well what do you mean is it guaranteed that then hitler wouldn't is it? and then you get way too precise but on a superficial level yeah, like i just say, did sorry yeah <laughs> totally fine. all these annoying all these annoying pedants <laughs> um but the yeah i mean the, the, i think that on, a, on the surface at least the question is nature versus nurture do you think people are born evil or do you think that they're a product of their environment possibly also genes are involved but it, they're not entirely responsible well indeed because the next question is what about psychopaths mm-hmm what about psychopaths? Um, psychopaths are, I think, one of the most misunderstood uh, groups of individuals in psychology at, at the moment. I think they're incredibly monsterized. They're this group where we sort of feel free to treat them as if they're monsters, both clinically and socially. Sort of, it's like a stamp of approval, like a medical stamp of approval that psychologists have this label. And we've always had at least one label that we use for people like psychopaths. Uh, and it's always been destructive, I think. But the core question is, what is it? And I think the core, core answer is probably has a lot to do with a lack of empathy. But 
that doesn't have to result in any kind of antisocial behavior. And so this is where I think there's this idea that they're manipulative and that, nar- that psychopaths are narcissistic. And also that there's this meaningful difference, psychopath versus us, where it's a scale. And we all, a lot of us have at least low levels of psychopathic traits. And it's just a question of how much do you have? And do you meet the threshold for a clinical diagnosis? And a lot of us don't. A few people do. And even those who do, again, don't necessarily have to have ever committed a crime. There's a great example of um, a, a researcher <laughs> a in the felon, book who, yeah. who, who discovers yeah, that he's... Ah, so much fun. Yeah, he, he was... Uh, uh, studying brain scans of uh, convicted psychopaths and he was comparing the brains of psychopaths to these pictures of psychopathic brains and non-psychopathic brains and the question was could he could he identify them just based on these pictures and he's going psychopath, not psychopath, 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 not psychopath, sort of sorting them and he held one in his hand and said this one's clearly a psychopath and it turns out later that that was his own brain um, which he then went back in his own family history and looked into sort of well do I have murderers in my family and the answer was yes and he ended up saying that, calling himself a pro-social psychopath. So, so widening out the idea of, of psychopaths, there's this group of diagnostic behaviours. We used to call them the dark triad, and mm-hmm. now they're called the dark tetrad, which is the first time I'd come across this is, is in this book. So what are they? The dark tetrad is uh, psychopathy, sadism, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And it's an expansion from the dark triad, which excluded sadism. And so effectively, it's this cluster and particularly what we consider a subclinical cluster. So we're interested in not people who have a full-fledged, if you will, diagnosis of all of these four or three, depending on which which of the the constructs you're going with. Um, But we're not interested in people who have full diagnosis on all of them, but people who rank high in all of these characteristics and people who rank high in dark tetrad or dark triad characteristics are much more likely to, if you will, get up to no good. So they're more likely to hurt people. They're more likely to have low empathy. They're more likely to do things that are harmful to themselves and others, mostly others. Now, there is a case to say that actually that some aspects of these behaviours might be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Although I must admit, I think this is a bit of a reach because some of them <laughs> we're, we're going to come back to later in the book about mm-hmm. how, you know, for instance, if you're a psychopath, might do really well in business or whatever. Well, that's a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> It's mixed. I mean, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, psychopath, <laughs> there's been some really fun studies on um, business schools and testing the scores that business students, so like MBA students, have on the psychopathy checklist. And they score much higher than a lot of other uh, students. And the argument there is that effectively a little having low empathy... <laughs> And being higher in narcissism and things like this can be good in a business setting. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes empathy can be get in the way of making money. Well, as I said, we're going to come back to that later on in the interview. Moves on to murder. Um, Murder, that's obviously a bad thing. But most murders, as you discuss in the book, and we'll talk about serial killers in a minute, but most murders are like pretty banal. Yeah, so I steal from Hannah Arendt and uh, use the word penality, but I use it for the banality of murder. Um, And when you start looking at the reasons people give for why they killed or murdered specifically, not just killed, murdered somebody else, um, they are, for lack of a better word, ridiculous a lot of the time. And they feel completely absurd. When you're when you're reading these statements, you go, this cannot be why somebody murdered somebody else. Because we, we have this depiction of sort of the movie plans, maybe even a bit attractive murderer who's gone out of his way. Maybe it's revenge or it's something profound and deep. And 
And that's just not reality most of the time. It's things like, you know, somebody owed me $2 and so I stabbed him to death. I mean, it's it's rash reactions. It's, yeah, you plan to kill this person, but you did it for a reason that most of us would consider certainly, I mean, insufficient to say the least, but that would be almost not re- close to reality. Like you're you're struggling to really appraise the situation for what it is and the consequences of that action. And so, yeah, the, the reasons given are... But then serial killers, obviously, uh, you know, slightly. I mean, we, we, and I say we, I mean me, mm. who seems to watch nothing else on Netflix apart from documentaries about serial killers at the moment, <laughs> um, have this sort of fascination with the idea of, of the serial killer, don't we? Yeah, I think a lot of people do. Uh, and and luckily, serial killing is a rare thing. And so most people who murder never murder someone again. And the a pretty high rate that we catch people at because if someone shows up dead uh, generally people care and will find out who did it and so actually our conviction rate and the, the rate of catching people who murder others is probably among the highest of all crimes um, and so serial killing is particularly curious because it's sort of this idea that how does someone get away with it and then get away with it maybe multiple times without getting caught. And so there, I think, the fascination often comes from not just the maybe fear that we feel and the, um, to use a psychological word here, uh, the arousal, sort of the excitement that comes with watching that kind of scenario in a documentary or in a, in a cinematic representation. But it also comes with admiration. I think we, we definitely, I mean, it's the same thing with heist movies for... Uh, like uh, stealing or bank robberies, like a bank heist. There's this, there's this sort of almost pleasure we get from the idea that someone meticulously planned something and went through with this really interesting way of getting away with it. And so I think that in of itself can be praised, and we we like that kind of meticulousness. And I think we respond to that, and not necessarily to the fact that somebody was killed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dr. Julia Shaw. We're talking about her latest book, Making Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. And Julia, I want to start the second half off. Um, There's some great research in the book about what it is that makes us think some people are creepy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a whole chapter on creepiness, uh, which... I think surprised me even that I had a whole chapter worth of stuff to say about mm-hmm. it. But I guess the, the question to me was, why are there situations and people who we find creepy? What does it actually mean? Sort of the sort of back to the idea of depictions in film, like why are clowns creepy? Why are little kids with darkened eyes creepy? Why are laughing people who have killed, who are killing someone? Like there's, there's these bits of things that are creepy, but then there's also just what somebody looks like. Um, so, you know, you're at the bar and someone's standing next to you. At what point is that person creepy? And it's, I mean, and there's been some research on this. And it's quite funny. Some of the things that people indicate they pick up on. Things like long fingers. <laughs> that one's terrifying, isn't it? How do you notice someone has particularly long fingers? <laughs> long fingers. Uh, I mean, other things that are more classic, like sort of having bad, you're just checking your hands. <laughs> I've got particularly short. Average. I've got more sort of Trumpian fingers. They're very short, <laughs> like a child. Uh, but yeah, log figures are one thing. Uh, then there's the more normal stuff, like not like hygiene, like poor hygiene, uh, staring, this body language type stuff. Someone who effectively is not appropriately uh, in line with social cues and social norms, and of course that quickly turns into problems. And this is what I talk about in the book as well: is that when we start talking about people with disabilities or people with um, psychological difficulties or differences, um, we will find people who can behave in ways that are not in line with social norms or don't look the way that we would expect them to. And that creeps us out or that scares us. And that, of course, has hugely stigmatizing effects. And so we need to be incredibly careful because our creeptar, as I'd explain, is, is really quite bad. Well, the one thing I thought was quite good is that when people become too perfect, if people are too good looking, they're seen as creepy. Yeah, Yeah, we don't like deviation from the norm. Uh, We don't we don't like you being too tall or too short. We don't like you to being we don't like you to be too attractive or too unattractive. Uh, Default default is best for not being creepy. There's a chapter about sexual deviancy, but that's probably the wrong way to describe it because the whole point of the chapter is that you know across the spectrum of kink or whatever you know there's it's a lot more normal than we would we would normally imagine mm-hmm. um but then you get on to zoophilia mm-hmm. so let's talk about that one <laughs> yeah right to the end yeah. uh yeah i mean after right uh, to mr ed <laughs> uh i mean you're skipping over all the fun bits about uh bdsm stuff and about even just coming out and the experience of that and sort of different issues around morality and what we consider evil different parts of the world and, but you're right at the very end of that chapter i build up to as i do in most of my chapters I take you through more normal stuff that you could probably relate to via Fifty Shades of Grey in this case. And you end up at people who have sex with animals. <laughs> so you deviate, if you will, from probably your normal, I presume. Although, who knows who, what your listeners are like. This is true. Uh, and the question there is, uh, why do we care that people have sex with animals? And I think it's a... I, I found it a really interesting thought experiment and a really interesting thing to look at the research on. Full disclosure, not much research on it. Uh, also, quite a rare sexual mm-hmm. fetish. It's not actually something that that many people engage in, even though it's something that I think is socially ridiculed quite readily. Which but is it, probably linked yes, to why just, there's not that much research on it. Yes, probably, almost certainly. Um, but it's also a... Yeah, it's a sort of taboo of... we. 
joke about the fact this happens, but no one actually talks about it or talks about why it might happen. And effectively, zoophiles themselves, uh, based on this research that I review, is uh, they generally say that it's for the same reasons as people date human beings. It's, you know, it's the intimacy, it's the partner, it's having, having someone who doesn't judge you, someone who can just love you, sort of that primal version of love. Um, so it's not just about the sex. And I think that's a, that surprised me. I think it would surprise a lot of people. Um, and it's just, I mean, on some, some levels, why do we care so much? Um, but then, of course, there's questions about consent and can animals consent? And they can't legally, but what does it all mean? There is there is a, a comment from one zoophile in the book that says, you know, uh, that the animals are consenting. Yeah, and that there there have so there is, and I don't know that I brought, bring this up in the book, but there until recently there were a couple countries in the world where animal brothels were legal. Um, now, animal brothels are uh, places where, as you might guess, you can have sex with animals for money. Um, now, the animals probably don't get the money because that wouldn't make sense. But the way that it worked, and the reason it wasn't illegal is that the animals had to choose you. <laughs> so that was the idea of consent, is that it's not you having sex with an animal, it's an animal having sex with you. Mm-hmm. And I, I do find so that... the animals basically are coming over for some food, basically. I mean, it's not coming <laughs> over... Hump, and, 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 okay, I mean... I I we we do much worse things with animals than let them hump us, I think. I mean, if you think about mass animal production, mm-hmm. um, I mean, if yeah, we're talking about ethics of animals, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of messed up stuff that we do. So anyway, it's uh, the, I think at this point that's illegal everywhere, but um, certainly that's been a... Where were these animal brothels? I asked for a there was one. <laughs> there was one in Europe. Uh, or there was one country in Europe that was still, where it was legal until recently, and there was one of the Nordic countries where it was quite close to home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know enough about developing world or developing countries or, or third world countries um, for it to know whether what the laws are around bestiality there or whether it's practiced or not. Um, but even in even close to home, we had some, some versions of that. So, okay, so a lot of the things that we've talked about so far are very tabloidy applications of the word evil. If we, you know, we're talking about, you know, whether or not people are born evil or murderers who murder somebody once in a, you know, in, in, in a moment of madness could be considered evil. And now we'll go on to the absolute tabloid bet noir, you know, the worst possible mm. imaginable thing that you could do or think about if you're a tabloid newspaper editor. And that is, of course, paedophilia. Mm-hmm. Um, people uh, who listen to the show regularly might have remembered we t- I talked to um, Jesse Baring about his brilliant book, Perv, and we talked about this exact thing, which is that um, paedophile is a description in a newspaper but it's not an accurate term to describe somebody that, on average, sexually abuses children, is it? It completely depends on why. Um, so we effectively completely overuse the term. We use it, uh, especially the t- tabloids use it, to describe, I mean, it depends on the tabloid, but uh, to describe anyone who has been accused or actually has uh, or has been proven to have had uh sex or any kind of sexual interaction with someone who's a minor. And the problem with that, there's lots of problems with that. One is that you might not be a pedophile. You might just have chosen to, in one instance, sexually abuse someone who is under the age of 18. Because the opportunity Because the opportunity is there. They can be easier victims. And so it's not actually your sexual preference. It's just that happens to be who you assaulted in that particular instance, and they happen to be or intentionally were under the age of 18. Uh, that's completely different than someone who has a sole or primary sexual tendency towards or a sexual preference for underaged individuals. And within that, even, pedophiles are only people who are sexually attracted to people before they hit puberty. So that is the actual definition. And so someone who has sex with, or someone who... 
let's say there's a 19-year-old who's consensual or, and this is where we get into also ages of consent varying in different countries, but let's say there's a 14-year-old who uh, until recently would have, for example, in Germany been allowed to consent to having sex with a 19-year-old. They consent. Um, is that person a pedophile? And the answer is no. If anything, they're an ephebophile. But even that, probably not, because at 19, that's not as weird. If that 19-year-old were 40, suddenly it's different. And again, if it's a primary or exclusive interest. So it's, uh, it gets quite complicated. So there's effectively three kinds of individuals with um, a sexual preference for underaged individuals. And one is actual pedophiles who would be attracted to prepubescent individuals. Then there's the in-between, which are called ephebophiles. So there are people who are attracted to children who are in the midst of puberty, if you will. And then there's ephebophiles. And ephebophiles are individuals who are attracted to like 14 plus. And now I think it's safe to say that we culturally treat 14, 15, and 16-year-olds completely differently than we do five, six, and seven-year-olds. And to lump people who have a preference for those two different categories into the same category is wrong. It's not the same, and the prognosis is different. Um, and we need to be much more careful in how we talk about these things in meaningful ways so that we actually offer the help that's needed to help people not offend. And indeed, I mean, this hypothetical tabloid newspaper that I'm thinking of that's printing a you know, front-page picture about how we should string up this paedophile mm-hmm. is probably writing that next to a photograph of a 14-year-old girl in a bikini. Right, or even a 17-year-old girl in a bikini. I mean, it's, it's, it is, um, again, it's just totally, it's, it's used too broadly and it's used uh, too negatively and it's used uh, making a lot of assumptions um, that we need to be very careful about making. Um, I mean, the other thing to say is obviously, you know, paedophilia is a paraphilia that somebody is almost certainly born with. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, and I caveat the next sentence is because obviously these two things are often conflated by bigots. But, you know, we're now in the situation where if a person's homosexual, we would suggest that trying to cure them of that is bad and wrong and not something that would be successful anyway. Mm-hmm. And yet, if somebody is, you know, born a paedophile and is, you know, going to spend their life being sexually attracted to children, we still have this mindset that somehow there's something we can do about that. Somehow that person could conceivably be cured or dealt with. Well, it's as if it's a moral failure Mm. rather than a biological predisposition. I mean, to think that someone would choose a life where they are only sexually attracted or primarily sexually attracted to children, I think is absurd. I mean, you are making your life insanely difficult and you probably have a huge amount of self-shame for most people. Um, and when you look at people who say that they have tendencies or who have uh, fantasies about children who are non-offending, so who have never downloaded child porn, for example, or who have never offended against a child, um, the numbers are huge. I mean, some estimates put it around 2%. I mean, these, these are huge amounts of people. And effectively, the help and support that these individuals can get is virtually non-existent. And that is hugely troubling, and that should worry us all, because if you are struggling with something like that, you need help and you need people around you who don't just judge you and call you a monster for even thinking things like that. So how could we do it better? I mean, rehumanize individuals who have sexual uh, proclivities that maybe you disagree with or think are immoral um, and just accept that they probably didn't choose to have them and that um, what we want to focus on is managing the situation and managing the behavior and trying to make sure that people don't offend, especially when we're talking about pedophilia, uh, and offer them treatment and support. I said in the first half that we were going to we were going to come back to when we talked about some of the perhaps beneficial ways that being a psychopath could mm-hmm. help you out in society. 
But I want to talk about basically something that's possibly worse than what we were just talking about in the last discussion. Um, that's capitalism. <laughs> and uh, to be fair, you're, not, you're polite enough in the book not to describe it as such. But you know, there are various ways in which money basically acts as a, a moral sponge for lots of ways. And we mentioned before, you know, obviously eating animals mm-hmm. would be one thing. Buying cheap clothes in the West that are produced by, you know, in sweatshops in the developing world would be another. And then we also talked earlier on about how it's sort of ridiculous to label anybody as actually, you know, as evil. Mm. It's sort of, a you know, a ridiculous um, cartoon idea to actually suggest that anybody is evil. But then let's talk about Ascrelli. let's talk about Martin Scurrelli. Yes, <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, but whatever, we're, screw him. Pharma bro. Uh, yeah, this is someone who <laughs> Pharma bro became famous for buying, among other things, the rights to raise the price of the AIDS drug uh, Daraprim from thirteen fifty to seven hundred and fifty dollars per pill, and making it insanely expensive to buy this life saving. Uh, tool. And uh, he also bought a couple other things and did the same thing. So effectively, he was buying up medical stuff, medical licenses, I guess would be the term, and putting on it a ridiculous surcharge. And he got widely called uh, evil for this, as you might expect. Um, Now, what was fun about the situation, not that the situation itself was fun, but was his reaction, because he absolutely reveled in the controversy that he was creating. And he, I mean, there was thing he he was found to be lying about where he went to university. And the neck that evening after that had been found out, he wore a sweater from the university that he was knowingly lying about having attended. I mean, it was just he absolutely played into it. And uh, the jury selection process for when he eventually went on trial, so before, right before he went on trial, uh, was also quite hilarious. And it was really, really difficult to find jurors who hadn't heard about him and who didn't think he was uh, absolutely terrible. And uh, some of the quotes in these jurors are absolutely hilarious. Yeah, and at least we should not forget that he also disrespected the Wu-Tang He clan. sure did. <laughs> he bought a Wu-Tang Clan album and then he didn't release it to the public. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, if you some of the some of the quotes are just hilarious, and some of the jurors, I mean, things like uh, you know, could you be impartial to this aspect of court? And then the juror being, I'm aware of the defendant, and I hate him, <laughs> or I think he's a creedy little man, or uh, I don't think I could, I'd want, I wouldn't want me on this jury. I mean, it's just just so great. One more thing before we finish, then, and I, as you've got the book, I just wanted to read at the very end. Although you know we haven't talked about everything that you talk about in the book, but at the end there is like a sort of Ten Commandments of of how we can be better around the subject of evil. Would you read those for us? Uh, Sure. Um, I'll read the little entry to it as well. So, when we understand what leads to harm, we can begin to fight against it. This involves taking action to stop harm, fighting against our own urges to do harm, and helping people who have done harm to get better. And whatever we stand for, fight for, feel for, we must never dehumanize each other. Ten things everyone needs to know about evil. First, Calling people evil is lazy. Second, all brains are a bit sadistic. Third, we are all capable of murder. Fourth, our creepiness raiders suck. Fifth, technology can amplify dangerousness. Six, sexual deviance is pretty common. Seven, all monsters are human. Eighth, money distracts from harm. Ninth, culture cannot excuse cruelty. And ten, we must speak of the unspeakable. 
So I have but one wish. Please stop calling people or behaviors or events evil. It ignores the important nuances of the underlying behaviors. I encourage you instead to think the unthinkable, speak of the unspeakable, explain the unexplainable, because only then can we begin to prevent that which others have deemed unpreventable. It's time to rethink evil. So I've been talking to Dr. Julia Shaw. We've been talking about her latest book, Making Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side, which is out now in the UK from Canongate. Julia, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.